This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest edition of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and this week we'll be looking at some important news involving oil prices and energy providers. On a similar theme, Danny Houston will be chatting to a company about why it's just bought a wind farm in the US. Laura Souter is with me this week. She's got some helpful hints on managing your money. I've always got helpful hints. That's right. If you need to take on some debt to cover the rising cost of living that we keep talking about, then I've got some good tips on how to keep your borrowing costs down. I'm also going to be chatting about the launch of a new savings bond um, from a charity which pays 3.5% where you have the chance to lend money to help support charities. Laith Kalaf will be joining us later in the show to talk about Britcoin, the nickname for a digital currency being considered by the Bank of England. And for any listeners who keenly follow stock markets, I've got some good news involving shares in Royal Mail and some bad news for anyone who's invested in Visa. And finally, in this bumper episode, Jenny Owen is going to be here to tell us about a record-breaking Einstein auction. But first up, let's get cracking with markets news. Dan, what's the big stuff this week? Well, it's been an absolutely brilliant week for Royal Mail. The shares are up 15% in the last seven days alone. You know, 15% is twice what you'd expect to make from investing in shares in a year based on historical returns. So Royal Mail is up actually 50% this year in total. I mean, that you know, if you've invested wow. that stock, yeah, you'd have done incredibly well. You know, this business has seen a big surge in demand for parcel delivery. And it's convinced the trend is here to stay. So it's not simply just a one-off pandemic boost. Now, letter volumes are down and they continue to fall. But the parcel stuff is where the growth is coming from. And you just have to remember that Royal Mail is um, not just about the UK. It's got overseas operations as well. It does businesses in places like Canada. Well, actually, just before we're recording this podcast, I did see a column in the Guardian newspaper entitled Royal Mail is failing everyone but its shareholders. And it sort of rounded up letters from readers who are grumbling about slow delivery times. And one person even said, well, the advice to post early for Christmas has never been important. And they said, I'm talking about Christmas 2022. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to pitch in on all your positivity to say that Royal Mail in my area is still a complete disaster and there's weeks and weeks of delays in post so maybe I should have invested in it and then I could have benefited from this boom while I sat by my door waiting for my delayed post. (laughs) Well we've also had some good news for um, if you're invested in Decra Pharmaceuticals and Electra Components. Now they both look like they're going to win a place in the FTSE 100 index and that's that's a real badge of honor for for companies on the stock market so decor is really big in veterinary products and we know that world's gone animal crazy over the past few years you know i I had to take my cat to the vet the other day and i couldn't believe how many people going in and out of that surgery so um you know anything pet related is doing really well at the moment and you know the FTSE russell who, who sort of manages this index of them the uk's stock companies um, they they look at it once a quarter and and sort of rejig who should be in and who should go out. Dark Trace got a spot in the FTSE 100 at the last reshuffle, but share price weakness would suggest it's going to lose that place. Um, AO and Restaurant Group look like they're going to be demoted, but Goldman Sachs's private equity 
Investment Collective, Peters Hill, which recently joined the stock market. That looks like it's going to get a place in the FTSE 250 index. So you have to remember, these are only kind of the predictions of the changes at the moment. We have to wait until after the market closes on the 1st of December to see which names are definitely going to move in and out of the different indices. Um, But Dan, you mentioned at the start that there's been some bad news involving Visa. What's happening there? Yeah, so Amazon has said it's going to stop accepting Visa credit cards on its UK website. So uh, from 19th of January next year. So it's simply saying that, you know, I'm sorry, we just can't take any payments through Visa credit cards. Visa's fees are just getting far too high for us to justify. Now, UK only accounts for, you know, it's less than 1% of Visa's credit card volumes globally. But um, what's really interesting is that this is the third time that Amazon has sort of uh, flexed its muscles and said, I'm sorry, enough's enough. So it's, it's already stopped um, Visa credit card payments in Singapore and Australia. Um, and now the fear is that it potentially might do the same in the US. Now, furthermore, Amazon actually has its own credit card and it uses um, Visa as the partner on it. So I wonder if they've got you know, sour relationships that maybe Amazon might switch to MasterCard. But really, you know, you have to think that the payments world is changing. People don't simply just buy through um, you know, a debit or credit card, perhaps as they used to. There's now you know, big interest in buy now, pay later, all these sort of digital wallets. So if, if you use PayPal, um, that's incredibly popular now. And it's just struck a deal with Amazon in the US to use its digital wallet Venmo. So I think you know, whilst it may seem initially a bit of a shock that you know, Amazon was saying, sorry, I'm not going to use Visa credit cards because so many people have got them. You do have to think that the payments world is changing. Uh, and Equally, there are plenty of people who don't want to use that uh, when they go shopping for goods online. So wait, if, if Visa provides is the provider for Amazon's credit card, does that mean that you can no longer use Amazon's credit card on Amazon? Well, it certainly was suggested, wasn't it? So it's it's um yeah. it's very bizarre. Yeah, I think obviously that they yeah the, the relationship between those two companies is certainly not very good. Or is it a case of Amazon making these threats and seeing what you know what Visa can come back with? You know, can it strike a better deal? I mean, we've heard about this a few years ago um, with other sort of. Uh, you know companies and they that's what they did they just tried to see they they went public and it ended up just getting a better term and it was all fine and dandy but um yeah i mean it's, it's interesting obviously you have to think that amazon probably wants to do everything itself doesn't really want to use payment networks but um you know there is a lot of sense in in sort of tapping into sort of a big global network like um visa or equally amazon um sorry american express or, or mastercard and so um, another company that hasn't had a very good week is online goods seller AO. What's happened there? Well, what happens when a low margin business suffers a big increase in costs? Well, profits get hit. Now, I know that kind of sounds like I'm, I'm trying to give a bad joke, but really it's kind of an accurate description <laughs> of what AO's you know, what's AO's gone? It's gone from being a stock market darling to a mega flop this year, just issued its second profit warning in as many months. You know, this is a business that, you know, last year, share prices up more than 350%. Because if you think it, it saw a big surge in orders for people wanting to have computers so they could work from home or the kids could do their schoolwork from home. TVs were a big seller and also things like freezers as well. People were sort of rushing to stock up on food for fear that they couldn't get to the supermarket. So 
this year, AO sales aren't as strong, but it's also got really extra costs as well. So it's having to spend more on marketing to get its brand notice. In Germany, the, the online electrical space there is very competitive. Um, and of course, it's got this supply chain problems as well. So poor old AO. I mean, I don't know if you've ever used it. The services, when I've used it, it's always been very, very good. Um, you know, just exactly what you want from a retailer. You, you buy the product, they keep you informed when it's going to arrive, and they actually stick to those times and they do it. They just they just don't make much money on you know off each item. That's the problem, really. Yeah, I'm a big fan of them. I've used them a lot and also I've had to return stuff with them. And like you say, their customer service is great. But also one of the reasons I use them is because they are very reasonably priced, which I guess is to your point of them having quite low margins. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, it's, it's a bit of a disappointment, but, you know, I, I you quite often hear these sort of um, suggestions that what does well on the stock market one year, if it's an absolute winner, is definitely not going to do well second year in a row. And, you know, AO is true to form on that on that point. And so before we wrap up everything on the markets, um, oil prices have been back in the news again as various countries have released some of their strategic reserves. Um, why are they doing that, Dan? Well, I mean, it, it, there's been concerns about um, you know, rising oil prices here. And, um, you know, the US has led various countries in saying, you know, let, let's sort of dip into our strategic reserves and uh, we can sort of give some more oil supplies here. Uh, it didn't do anything to, you know, to try and dampen commodity price inflation here. Actually, what's happened is that um, oil prices have sort of slowly started to sneak up again. I think that the markets just looked at this and thought, well, Firstly, why why are governments dipping into strategic reserves? You know, these should really be um, kept for emergencies. And we, you know, they, the government shouldn't be trying to control the market price. And also, the amount they released is very, very small in the bigger scheme of things. And uh, and I just think that um, the market now is sort of saying, well, you know, this is just a signal that the governments might be prepared to release more reserves in the future if they want but actually you know they've still got to replenish those stockpiles and you know the oil price keeps going up it's going to just cost them more to do it so um i guess it's not perhaps not not gone the way that you know, some of these governments had expected um and you know as we record this you know oil prices are still high they're sort of hovering around 83 dollars a barrel um you know and it's just the idea that commodity price inflation would just disappear, you know, it, it just doesn't seem to be um, on the agenda for any time soon. So sticking with the energy topic, uh, we continue to hear bad news about utility providers going bust. And one of the country's fastest growing suppliers has just collapsed. So Bulb is the biggest ever energy supplier to fail. What does that mean if you're a customer then, Laura? Yeah, so Bulb has 1.7 million customers, which is pretty massive. So you said we'd seen some utility providers fail before, but they were pretty, there were smaller providers. Some people had never even heard of them. Um, Bulb is the the biggest one to go so far. And um, because it's much bigger, the process is very different. So with those small ones, um, their bank of customers was just allocated to another bigger company um, and then those customers were moved over. Uh, It's a different process for Bulb um, and as such, those customers won't immediately be transferred over to another provider. So if you're a Bulb customer, um, as frustrating as it probably seems, the best thing you can do is do nothing. Um, Your supply is still going to continue. Nothing will change. Your tariff will still remain 
Um, any credit that you have with Bulb uh, will also remain um, for now. So you just basically need to keep paying your direct debit or topping up your prepay meter. Um, and don't switch is the biggest tip. You might think, okay, Bulb's failed. This is going to be a nightmare. I'm just going to switch to another provider. But um, there are no tariffs at the moment that are cheaper than what you'll be on with Bulb because energy prices have gone up so much. Um, so even if you're on a standard variable tariff, which is usually the most expensive, because of the price cap, that means that you'll be getting a better rate than anything you could get now if you switched in the market. So um, you have to sit on your hands, sit tight and wait for um, more information and don't panic. Thanks, Laura. So we recently sent Danny Houston off to talk to one of the companies involved in the US energy space to find out what's happening there. So she spoke to Jerry Polacek and Matt Ordway from Ecofin Renewables Infrastructure Trust about why the business has just bought a Texas wind farm, what they thought of COP26 and the opportunities the US presents as it transitions to clean energy. So let's hear that interview now. If investors don't know about Ecofin, if they don't know uh, about the, the project, what should they know? So I just start off with you know who we are. So Ecofin supported by our parent company, Tortoise Ecofin, we're a substantial investment manager with a staff of around 130 people. We, and we manage about $9 billion. The company is about 20 years old. Um, and our team that focuses on Renew, we're led by a seasoned US-based US investment team, which I think is important. We've got about 50 years investment experience. And the team here is focused on a few things. One, we're a US-based team, which is quite different from many of our competitors. We're focused on the middle market, which is something that I think uh, differentiates Ecofin and Renew from others is that we're looking at projects that keep us out of the, the large auction processes. All the investments we source to date have been sourced bilaterally without large auction processes. If there was something that's, that sets you apart what would it be, do you think? Because it is quite a crowded field at the moment. Yeah, I, I think it's a couple of those things I already mentioned. So the, the, our team's based here in the US. A lot of our competitors we've noticed have teams based in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. And it is it definitely the middle market piece, I think is really gives us something different and unique from many of our competitors. Um, the, the rates of return we see in these middle market deals because we're avoiding the large auction processes and because these projects tend to be smaller, a lot of the, a lot of the large funds don't want to spend their time doing the diligence on these smaller projects and rolling up a small portfolio, uh, small, a small project into a large portfolio. So we're willing to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty and spend the time on these smaller projects. And what we see is because we're avoiding these large processes, we're getting slightly better returns on these smaller projects. And the hope is that over time we can amass a large portfolio and you know, benefit from yield compression as the portfolio uh, scales. I know something that a lot of people have been concerned about when investing in renewables is that it does involve a lot of illiquid assets. So how does the way that you're set up provide a cushion for investors? Yep. So first of all, I'd like to say, I think investors will want to own these assets for the long term as these are, they benefit from long-term fixed price contracts, selling power to high credit quality off takers. So, you know, the, these types of assets provide investors with stable cash yield over many, many years. So I think, you know, it's not an investment I expect investors to want to liquidate, 
But one of the benefits of being in a publicly traded vehicle like Renew is that if an investor does want to exit, they have the ability to sell their shares at any time, hence making what otherwise would be a more illiquid investment in a, in a private wind or solar project into something that's very liquid. And I think that's something that you know, combines the liquidity that they're looking for with the ability to access the, the types of assets that you wouldn't otherwise be able to uh, find. Um, and then the other thing is I'd say, you know, even if people do have concerns about the, the, the fact that renewable projects on the private side are less liquid than buying or selling a stock, there's an abundance of investors out there that want to own these types of assets. So for some reason, if any investor, you know, not just at Renew, but an investor in general wanted to sell a portfolio of wind or solar projects, at any point in time, there'd be a long line of investors lining up to, to buy those. Um, they're very, very in demand these days. And you mentioned wind and, and you've just moved into wind. Tell me about that. Yeah. So when we drafted the prospectus for Renew a year, year and a half ago, whatever it was, we were very purposeful about including wind. Uh, we didn't want the fund to be 100% focused on solar. Uh, we see that wind provides quite a bit of diversity from a resource perspective, as well as from a location perspective. For example, if you think about it, there's very little correlation between when the wind blows in Texas and when the sun shines in California. So we think having that variety and diversity across the portfolio is quite beneficial. Um, it also uh, creates a more stable yield profile as, over the years for investors. Um, and we also see that wind provides a slightly higher return from a cash yield and from a total return perspective for investors than relative to solar. So we think it's an attractive addition to the portfolio that uh, many other funds, quite frankly, aren't uh, pursuing those types of opportunities. Jerry, let's talk about the differences between the UK and the US, because it, I know that it's sometimes quite hard to understand the way things work in the US from our perspective. Um, I, I know people might look at the person in the White House and think, hang on a second, you know, we've, we've got uh, President Biden at the moment, a big supporter of renewables. Um, but people might wonder what happens to plans, what happens to all this investment if someone else moves into the White House at the next election? Because, of course, we saw with Donald Trump a very different um, kettle of fish. Yeah, Danny, no, that's a good, a good point. And, you know, it's our belief that the growth of renewable energy in the U.S., will continue unabated irrespective of the political leanings of the next president. And the reason for that is renewables is now economically compelling to energy consumers. So even without, even without subsidies. And then, you know, the other thing is there is now a multi-year policy in place at the federal level in, in support of renewable tax credits as well as over 30 states that have renewable portfolio standards that drive ongoing adoption of solar and wind energy. Um, you know, looking at the, at the US, renewables enjoys bipartisan political support and it really comes down to jobs. So you have, you know, renewables installations and manufacturing that span 50 states. And so you'll often find that you know, some of the largest renewables installations and, you know, some people may find it um, surprising. The largest um, state for wind power is in Texas, which, you know, arguably is a conservative state. But obviously, given that there's a lot of jobs here, there's a lot of support in Congress. And um, so, yeah, we're we're very pleased with um, Biden's support for renewables, but we're equally optimistic about the prospects for renewable energies growth in the US. 
And a huge amount of money, obviously, is now going to be spent on infrastructure. I've read a lot about the power network in the United States, and it does need some upgrading. Absolutely. And, you know, if you look at it last year, I think 60% of generation was provided by fossil fuels in the U.S., President Biden has come in and he set a goal of decarbonizing the U.S. power grid by 2035. The, um, the U.S. power grid, just as a frame of reference, is about 12 times as large as that of the U.K. So there's tremendous, um, you know, each year we're seeing 20 to 30 billion of investment going into solar and wind facilities installations in the U.S., um, and so the mass, the opportunity is just massive. I mean, you see forecasts out, out there over the next decade of over $350 billion of capital investment in order to decarbonize um, um, and, and advance solar and wind energy. So um, there's a lot to be done. There's investment to be made in, in transmission as well to help that happen. And um, you know what we're what we're watching very closely right now is the Build Back Better Act, which has an estimated five hundred billion dollars allocated towards combating climate change, and will really be a, a, a huge catalyst for the industry in the years to come. You talk about Build Back Better. That's a, a slogan mm -hmm. that's well known in the UK as well. Um, we've had some teething troubles. I mean, anybody that's been looking at gas prices over the last uh, few weeks will will understand why there is concern about how this transition is going to impact the consumer. What are you doing and what needs to be done to protect the consumer during this period of time? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. And I think it is important to ensure that the energy transition occurs as quickly as it can without negatively impacting the consumer in terms of the reliability of electric electricity that they expect. I think what you're going to see in the next, you know, three to five years are a couple of things that will lessen the impact of, of natural gas um, um, prices on the consumer. So we're seeing great strides in cost reductions of lithium ion batteries, which are the primary uh, technology for battery storage. And you're also seeing um, significant uh, technology investments in long duration battery storage as well. And, you know, many forecasts have it in, in the next, you know, three to five years that that price convergence will, will help lessen the need for gas power generation for peaking, et cetera. And so that's really what you're gonna, the trend to look out for in the next three to five years that battery storage is gonna continue the cost declines in a similar way that solar power has experienced over the last decade. We hear your excitement. We can understand the opportunities. Um, obviously everyone's been very much focused on climate change over the last few weeks. Uh, COP26 just come to an end. In your opinion, was it a success? Yes, I, I, I think it. I think it was a success. And so, COP26 brought together 
an impressive array of global political and business leaders to advance the drive to net zero emissions. And this is a good thing, right? Um, and you know, there are a number of tangible achievements coming out of it. Um, what I would view, you know, again, from the US lens is, um, you know, is, watch, is watching this Build Back Better Act um, in the US, which just really will help accelerate the transition to um, decarbonizing the U.S. and you know it's it's um, I'm less impressed by um, you know countries making uh, commitments that are 40 years from now. I'm really more interested in seeing what are people doing today to accelerate the energy transition and build back better is one you know one example of that. So Matt, what's Ecofin going to be doing? What's your next? bit to help today? Yes, yeah, so we've actually been working on quite a number of projects. Um, as you brought up earlier, wind is uh, something we're very focused on. We're excited. We're working on a few transactions at the moment that we think will be benefits to the portfolio as well as to the environment. So it's something we're quite excited about right now. And if investors are going to be judging you on success, what should they be looking out for? Yeah, I think, look, the the most important thing when we set out to, um, to launch Renew, we were very clear about what we want to deliver to investors. And I think that we've done a fairly good job on the existing portfolio of meeting those mandates. So we talked about um, having a diversified portfolio of wind and solar assets that are selling power under long-term fixed price revenue contracts to investment grade quality purchasers. And the reason for that is it provides the stability of cash flow that investors are seeking that will enable Renew to continue to grow its dividends and offer investors attractive returns. So I think the thing that um, you know, investors over time were really, um, we're really pleased with the portfolio that we've put together. We think it's, uh, it's enabled us to um, start uh, providing dividends to investors from the first quarter of this year. And each subsequent quarter, it, we've been growing the dividends that we've been providing to investors. And so we really think that over time, um, as with each successive quarter of delivering on our commitments to investors and, and, and growing the portfolio that, um, you know, investors are going to be really pleased with their investment in Renew. Jerry Polachek, Matt Ordway from Ecofin, thank you both so much for your time. We'll keep a close eye on that. And thank you. First, we had Bitcoin, and now we've got Brickcoin. What a great name. So it's time to bring Leith Kalaf from AJ Bell on to talk about the Bank of England's new plans to introduce a digital currency. Now, have they called it Brickcoin, or is that your genius, Leith? Um, it's not my genius. I think it has sort of been dubbed that in certain sections of the media. Uh, the Bank of England um, are calling it uh, a central bank digital currency, which sounds a bit more boring. So I suspect Bitcoin will probably stick. Don't know what you think, but um, yeah, it's kind of. I think Bitcoin is probably the one that's going to be a runner for for, for the long term. So, um, so yeah, they're they're looking at basically introducing this. Not immediately. They're going to consult on it next year, um, with a view to perhaps um, they say introducing it um, at the back end of of this decade. Um, so. Um, probably worth kind of running through kind of what the what 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 the kind of scheme look like looks like at the moment i mean it's it's very different to 
Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, um, because this is a currency that's, uh, that's the, an asset that's, that's basically issued by the, the central bank. Um, and essentially it is just digital pounds. So there's not a new currency. Um, it's still based on, on, on pounds. And so it has a very stable value. So it's very different to things like, um, you know, uh, Bitcoin and Ether and Tether and all of these. Uh, well, not Tether, actually, because Tether is more stable. But Bitcoin, Ether, and uh, Dogecoin and, and, and all these sorts of things um, where they're not actually kind of have, they're not actually linked to any, any particular uh, currency or other. So, um, you know, it looks like the central bank is is one of many across um, the globe at the moment that is looking at, uh, at at introducing one of these these digital currencies. And actually, uh, if you already have, we've we've seen um, this week India has announced that it's it's also planning to announce uh, to uh, to launch a digital currency. Um, so, so um, why would the Bank of England want to get into this space? What's the motivation hmm. for them? Well, that's, I mean, that's a very good question, um, and I think it's kind of still hanging out there, to be honest with you. Um, on, on the face of it, there are some um, benefits that um, could be could be wrought from introducing a digital currency, um, you know, for consumers. So, in terms of um, the speed of transactions, the cost of transactions, um, potentially it may open up another kind of avenue for um, the central bank. Um, to be able to control um, monetary conditions as well. Um, but also there might be a little bit of fear involved from the central bank's point of view um, in that um, there are kind of increasingly, as, as we know, lots of private crypto assets out there. And there's kind of developments going on in this market all, all the time and things that are also called stable coins, which are a bit of a crypto asset, but also um, linked to existing currencies. Um, and, and I guess there might be a bit of fear from the central bank that actually one of these kind of, um, you know, private um, uh, networks is, is perhaps going to come come and, and launch something like a digital pound. Um, and actually that kind of usurps control away from 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 the central bank. So, um, you know, perhaps driven by um, potential consumer benefits, perhaps driven by a bit of fear about about kind of the private market taking over its its its, its sort of position of, of monetary power, um, and perhaps also just looking at it as an innovation um, and a way that that can kind of enhance um, the digital economy. You know, there are certain things that you can perhaps do with a uh, you know a, a, a digital currency that you can't do with 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 a, with a kind of you know, pounds and pence in your in your wallet and, and one of those things for instance is you know having you know programmable money so for instance you know money is paid from one person to a business or from one person to another person based on certain conditions being met um, so you know one potential example for, for of that might be you know some way down the line in the future of course if you have a you know a smart meter in your home where it's me- measuring your electricity um usage it then makes a payment to your uh, uh, electricity provider based on that usage um or or potentially perhaps um you know le- less happily um you know taxation you know payments might become more more digital as well so you know if you, if you have a transaction which is taxable then the hmsc can kind of just automatically program uh, the tax in, into that transaction is paid directly to them. So there's all sorts of innovations that might come from it um, as well. And, and you know, probably probably plenty of risks as well. So, so, I mean, this is all sounds quite interesting and logical stuff, but how have these proposals sort of been received by 
the you know, sort of the, the country then. Mm. I think I think it's quite quite interesting actually how they've been received so far. Um, in that I was I was kind of looking at the the consultation that they they put out so far, and um, by far the largest number of respondents were uh, fintech firms, so um, firms involved in financial technology, um, uh, rather than kind of you know the, the kind of old sort of banking institutions, which which actually may be at risk from um, the introduction of a, a digital currency. Um, and there are actually quite a lot of uh, quite quite a significant proportion of individuals who also responded to to the paper and also academics as well. So that's the kind of background in terms of of the proposal. I think generally speaking, there, there is kind of um, uh, support for it um, because you know the the kind of central banking system does need to keep up with developments that are happening in the digital economy. But I, I do think there is are also parts of you know the um, the kind of traditional finance establishment which were saying, well, "Well, kind of hang on a minute, we do need to be a bit careful." And you can see why that is because you know if you suddenly have a situation whereby the central bank is issuing you know, digital currency, which it's best to think of it as like a digital note or coin, really. You know, if they're issuing that and, and you know, as a consumer, I can go and hold my money with the central bank um, with zero risk because, you know, they're not going to default on it. Then why should I go and sort of keep my money with a normal commercial bank? Um, uh, you know, why should I, I take the risk that, you know, Lloyd's or Nat West is going to go under. Very unlikely, but why should I take that risk if I can go across um, and simply hold my money with uh, uh, the central bank? So, you know, there's this question about how it's going to fit together with the banking sector and, you know, how, how that transition will happen. And, you know, there are potential risks with that in terms of, you know, bank bank funding and potentially large amounts of deposits moving across to, 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 uh, to Bitcoin. So the bank probably has to be very careful in how it designs this so that it doesn't kind of you know, destabilise the existing financial ecosystem. Presumably there's a bit of a, a privacy question here as well in terms of if you're banking with the central bank with a digital currency, they can see every transaction that you make. So if there's wide adoption of that, surely, I mean, great for the bank in terms of the data gathering of um, immediate results on where everyone's spending their money and what they're doing with it. But um it feels like maybe an, a slight area of concern for consumers. I think that is probably fair, yeah. And and definitely, certainly one of the things that they have been looking at is kind of the issue of privacy and how they might be able to maintain that. Um, you know, I guess there's there's probably a certain amount of, you know, anonymity in terms of the, the huge volume of transactions that will be taking place. So, you know, in theory, they could know what you're doing, but they'd have to really zero in on you um, out of all the transactions that are happening. But, you know, it's definitely, um, you know, something um, that the bank is looking at. And it's definitely a concern I think ultimately consumers may share. Um, and, and, and probably one which which kind of explains why some, and, and, and I don't think it's by 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 any means a large number, but probably some um, consumers have turned to cryptocurrencies because they are kind of, you know, a little bit anti-establishment. They are separate from the banking system. They are, um, uh, you know, anonymous. And, 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 you know, that comes with its own issues in terms of, you know, the potential for money laundering by criminals, but it also is perhaps part of the appeal as well. So thanks, Leith. Well, we've got a few interesting bits now on saving and borrowing. So stick with us, because first up is news of a new savings bond, which pays 3.5% yield. And that's not a bad rate in today's world, really, is it? 
No, I mean, 3.5%, pretty attractive. It is a 10-year bond. So you've got to factor that in across those 10 years um, and think about what interest rates may do at that point. So this isn't your usual savings bond. It's what's called a mini bond. It's from the Charities Aid Foundation. Um, So this is an organization that kind of marries up donors and charities. Um, So there's lots of talk at the moment about... um, doing good with your money and having more kind of an ethical impact with your money. And this could be one way that you could do that because um, the money that's raised from this, the money that you hand over will be used to go to charitable causes, um, which is good. Uh, Part of the money is being used to repay existing bonds. So um, the Charities Aid Foundation had a bond that is due to run until 2026 that was paying five percent obviously since then interest rates have fallen people are willing to accept lower rates so they're going to repay that bond and pay out those customers um, and they're offering 3.5 percent on the new bond a few things you need to know the interest is going to be paid twice a year there's a 500 pound minimum investment and then after that it goes up in multiples of 100 pounds and if you wanted to do it then it closes on the 2nd December Um, if we look at how it stacks up to others there aren't really many other in the normal savings account market there aren't really um, 10-year bonds at the moment but the current five-year bond which is the longest I could find um, widely available the interest on that is just over two percent so in comparison to that it's fairly good Um, NSNI recently announced a three-year green bond so if you were looking for comparisons in the ethical environmentally friendly space um, that NSNI one is offering a three-year bond and that's at 0.65 percent so this one offers a lot more but The big caveat here is your money is not protected. So a mini bond is essentially like an IOU that's issued by a company um, in exchange for a fixed rate of interest. So they say, we'll repay you back your money at the end of this 10 years and we'll repay you, um, we'll pay you 3.5% interest. But there's not any protection on that. Um, If the organisation fails, you're not usually protected. You don't usually get um, protection from the FSCS, which is the compensation scheme. Um, So it's very different in terms of the risk you're taking than just opening a um, fixed rate bond savings account. So you just need to factor that in if you did want to put your money in things like this. So I presume with a mini bond, because that doesn't trade on um, on a market as like quite a lot of other bonds that you'd see that you're stuck in it you can't get out until that 10 year period is that correct yeah there's not usually a very good um what we call secondary market for this so you wouldn't have any way of going to the issuer so in this example charities aid foundation and saying oh i want my money back early and accepting some kind of like interest penalty or anything like that there's no option to do that sometimes there's a way of selling on your bond to someone else um but there's not usually a very good secondary market for these things or ability to sell it on so you need to know that you you're not going to need this money for 10 years okay well that's quite a lot to think about isn't it for for, you know obviously but a great example of how something that seemingly sounds brilliant uh when you just look at the headline rate but when you read the um you understand how it works and um sort of the the downsides to it there's a lot to think about isn't there for for yeah it's not as easy as thinking oh that's better than my savings account is offering me i'll put my money in there instead yeah. So for people who don't have cash that they can save, and instead they actually need to borrow money to help pay the bills, it's vital that you try and get the cheapest form of debt possible. And Laura has a few handy hints now on how to do this. 
Yeah, exactly. So I think um, lots of people will have taken on some debt through the pandemic or um, in recent months. And we're also coming around to a pretty expensive time of year in Christmas. Lots of people um, spend quite a lot more in November and December. Um, Obviously, you shouldn't um, spend money that you don't have or get into debt just for Christmas. But if you are in a situation where you're in debt, it's really important to get the cheapest debt that you can. Um, Now, while the Bank of England's base rate has been low for a very long time. Recently, there's been talk of interest rates rising, which we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, And that means that the cost of debt has started to creep up already, even though that base rate hasn't gone higher. Um, And once it does go higher, it's likely that we'll see um, another increase. So if we look at some figures from Money Facts, looking at the average credit card rate, at the start of this year, it was just under 25%, the average interest on credit card. Um, and by the end of October, it had gone up to 26.5% almost. Um, so there's been a little bit of an increase during that time. However, um, for those who hunt around for cheap deals, um, there's actually been an increase in the number of 0% deals. So lots of credit cards either offer 0% on purchases or a balance transfer where you move your debt from another credit card um, and they'll offer a 0% balance transfer deal. Um the number of, of those uh, products out there has increased and also the average length of time that you get that 0% period for has also increased. Um, so at the moment, for example, the longest deal that you can get on um, 0% on purchases is from Tesco Bank, which is runs for 23 months, so almost two years. Um, and the longest period that you can get for a 0% balance transfer is 31 months. Um, so if you've got existing credit card debt, then it's definitely worth looking at whether you can switch that to a 0% deal and then working out a plan to pay off that debt during that time. So if you've got a 0% deal, it's a great time to make use of that and pay off your debt so that at the end of that period, whichever period you pick, um, you will have paid off the debt during that time. Um, and then with personal loans, we've not actually seen interest rates go up too much in that space, um, which is quite good news. That doesn't mean to say that that's going to carry on into next year if we saw a Bank of England increase um, either next month or next year, um, we'd likely see those rates go up. But for example, at the moment, if you wanted a uh, £5,000 personal loan, then um, that would cost you about 7% is the average rate. Um, And then it it drops down the higher the loan amount. So if you get up to £10,000, it's um, around 4.5% is the average amount that you will pay. So what about overdrafts? I know quite a lot of people have them and you know, perhaps just don't really realise that this is another another sort of form of debt. Uh, just sits quite in the background. People tend to focus just on credit cards and loans, don't they? So- yeah, and I think this time of year is where more people might kind of gradually creep into their overdraft a bit. Um, and... Overdraft interest rates have gone up a lot. Uh, The government announced changes in the overdraft market in an attempt to simplify the charges. Um, And what has happened is that um, average interest rates have gone up loads. So where the average overdraft interest rate was about 19% in November 2019 before those changes were made, 
the average rate is now 34%, according to Bank of England data. So it's a very expensive way of um, having debt now. But there are still 0% overdraft deals available, probably not as many as they used to be. But um, if you have an overdraft and you're paying high interest on it, you can consider switching. So for example, Nationwide has a um, 0% overdraft up to £2,750. And that runs for a year, that 0% period. So you can work out a plan to repay that debt during that time. Um, Or it could be that you're better off switching that debt um, elsewhere. So, you know, repaying your overdraft and instead getting a 0% credit card, for example. Um, so really it's about shifting it, looking at what the debt is, finding out exactly what interest you're paying on that, um, and then working out a way to switch that to the cheapest possible way and coming up with a plan to repay it during that time. Uh, thanks, Laura. I hope listeners find that useful. But before we go, got one final bit from Jenny Owen, who's been watching a record-breaking auction in Paris. Yeah, in this week's Money Madness, it pays to be smart, really, really smart. Although we're talking about documents from one of the greatest minds on earth, I think the person who saved the papers could be the real brainiac here. A 54-page manuscript written by Albert Einstein fetched an eye-watering 11 million euros at an auction this week in Paris. It was written between 1913 and 1914 by Einstein and his Swiss colleague, Michel Besso, who had the brains to save the manuscript. The buyer of the documents has chosen not to be named, but the papers include his workings of the theory E equals MC squared, which details the interchangeability of energy and mass. But this wasn't the only chance to nab a piece of Einstein's legacy. Last May, a handwritten letter by Einstein contained his legendary equation and sold in the US for $1.2 million. Dated the 26th of October 1946, the letter was sold for three times more than had been expected. Apparently, there are only three other known examples of the equation in the physicist's handwriting. So these documents really are a rarity. Wow. So now you need to be digging through all of that old paperwork you've amassed, Jen, to see if there is some sort of priceless artifact in there. Oh my goodness, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Just trawling through old scraps of paper and all of a sudden you see equals MC squared, Einstein's handwriting, blimey. (laughs) So thanks a lot for listening this week. Don't miss next week's show as Dan is going to be talking to James Harris from Troy Global Income Fund about where we can find good dividends around the world. So we'll catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.